Well, we have two texts before us this night, uh, Matthew chapter 19, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Could please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word first to Matthew, the 19th chapter, and we will read the first nine verses. And as you turn there, we continue on pick up our series on the family. We have perhaps another two, maybe three sermons left in this series And though we have much rejoiced in the doctrine of marriage, it would behoove us to remember there is a doctrine of divorce and remarriage in the scripture as well. This is one of those perhaps unpleasant themes, but it is part of all the counsel of God. And because we're unfamiliar with God's own mind in these things, we find that many Christian marriages are destroyed by the evil one in our flesh. So let us now turn to Matthew 19 and hear the word of the living God. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a written uh, a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, Suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. I'm going to read a couple more verses. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he say unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. We'll pick up then 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll read verses 8 through 15. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, And if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. God in heaven, what a solemn thing it is to think of 
What God has joined together, men often tear asunder. Lord, for the sake of our marriages and the marriages to be, would you help your minister preach the word faithfully? This is a doctrine that many of our many of us find distasteful to the flesh. And so would you help us to know the mind of Christ and find our blessing in knowing the mind of Christ? Oh Lord, we pray that we would see the great picture of marriage in the gospel and we would never desire to tear apart what God has done, giving us this great gospel picture in marriage. But in those cases in which it is warranted, Father, would you help us through the preaching of the word to understand what cases uh, the Lord may allow for a divorce and also in which cases he allows for remarriage. Father, this is a difficult doctrine and we say we believe in the word of God. So we must say tonight, Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is, as you well know, an absolute epidemic of divorce in this nation. In 1890, one in 17 marriages ended in divorce. That's about 5% boys and girls. And yet we're all keenly aware of the statistic which says today about one in two marriages end in divorce. And the Christian church is just a little bit better than that. One in two, that's a staggering amount. From 5% to 50% an order of magnitude. And complicit in this are the civil magistrate, which of course now allows for something called no-fault divorce. Whereas the teaching of the scripture is if there is a divorce, somebody is at fault. Either uh, one party has sinned or both parties have sinned. That is the only way that you may have a divorce. In fact, this whole idea of no-fault divorce goes entirely contrary to the rule of King Jesus. And as one of the great provocations, let's not think that abortion is the only provocation of God in this nation. No-fault divorce is one of the great provocations that we have against God. But also the Christian church, as she has imbibed the, the culture of our day, and so-called secular counselors now will, will gleefully and gladly tell couples that they can divorce if they're upset with one another. And will even support ungodly, unbiblical divorces. Making allowances for divorce nowhere to be found in the Scripture that heap ruin on souls and cause families great turmoil and distress. And children are always, of course, caught in the midst of this. And on the other hand, um, and we sometimes forget it because the papacy has gotten more crafty than ever, we have the papacy who, as the National Covenant of 1638 reminds us, is cruel against the innocent divorce. Meaning that the papacy doesn't allow the innocent party in divorce to remarry. And this too is a great evil. And there are some Protestant and Reformed churches who follow the evil of the papacy in this cruelty. And so we must understand the totality of God's mind and God's law, the the rule that Christ gives us for divorce, lest we find ourselves in a ditch we ought never be. And as Reformed Christians, and as Presbyterians in particular, we are so thankful because godly men have in our confession of faith, which is not 
which is actually an unusual thing in the scope of confessions, has given to us an entire chapter on marriage, along with divorce and remarriage, which just says this might be more trivia for you. It's interesting that the London Baptist Confession ripped out the portion of our, our confession that deals with divorce. Why that is, we can talk another time. But we are blessed to have uh, God's mind as godly men have searched the scriptures to express it to us. And so tonight we will follow our confessions teaching as we believe our confession follows the scripture, that we might have the mind of Christ in a very difficult theme that comes out of the word of God. I won't bring the confession into this until the end of the our time together. But uh, um, I will also say that this is going to be, one, a very didactic sermon, and two, we cannot cover all that there is to say on this theme. And due to man's sin... Divorce can become very, very difficult very quickly. And there are so many permutations of difficult um, um, scenarios. Now, God's word is the same and very clear, but how sometimes we approach divorce and remarriage can be difficult. Uh, I'll commend to you also John Murray's very helpful book on divorce. Very good because not only does he deal with very difficult exegetical questions, he also has a section on practical cases in which we can apply the doctrine here And this is very useful, especially for church elders, um, as we counsel men and women over uh, marriages that are falling apart. So with all that said, our theme is the Lord's rule on divorce and remarriage, the Lord's rule on divorce and remarriage, and we'll divide our time into three heads, biblical divorce, biblical remarriage, and biblical authorities. First, biblical divorce. We were in Malachi's prophecy a couple of years ago, I think, at this point, maybe three years And we remember in the second chapter, the Lord, the God of Israel, saith he hateth putting away, which is divorce. And we remember that divorce is hated by God. And why is that? We we have to be clear. We have to know the mind of God in this. Because it attacks the great picture of the gospel, first and foremost. That marriage is a picture, as Paul lays out in Ephesians 5, of Christ's own commitment to the church, which is immovable and steadfast. And you think of Christ's commitment, not to a bride that is glorious in herself. She is dark, as we have seen in the the Song of Solomon, isn't she? She is a sinner. She is sinful. But he comes in the gospel to lay down his life for one as this, and has made an undying commitment by dying for her in order to cleanse her, to give his life for her, to wash her with the water of the word. And so, of course, we see divorce is something God hates because if he didn't hate divorce, we would have no hope for eternity, Christian. We would ask, is today the day that God is tired of me? Is this the sin that will cause God to say, you know what, now divorce is in the cards? No, he will never divorce his bride. Praise God. But as we consider Malachi 2, what God is particularly railing at in that text is unjust divorce. In other words, God doesn't hate every kind of divorce, but he hates divorce, generally speaking, and almost every kind of divorce that man can conceive of. Because even in the Old Testament law and in the New Testament teaching that we have heard in our texts, we see such a thing as biblical divorcement, which the Lord allows. Let's begin with Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, which is perhaps the key text in the Gospels. There are other um, 
texts. But this is perhaps the key text and the central text for divorce. Now, narratively, we find that the Pharisees were trying to entrap our Lord Jesus. This is what's going on here. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, this is a trap because there were two schools of rabbis who would interpret Deuteronomy 24. One school said that you could put away your wife only for adultery or some sexual sin. And then the other school said that a man can put away his wife for anything that displeases him. And so really the trap here is the Pharisees aren't really interested, let's get this clear, in divorce. They're interested in finding a gotcha question for our Lord so that they may condemn him. But Jesus will in no way, and we always love this, he doesn't exegete rabbis, does he? He exegetes the word of God. He takes us to God's design for marriage, verses 4 and six to 6. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read, so don't listen to the rabbis, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, that is, boys and girls, they're not two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, this is how we, of course, began our series on marriage in the Christian family. To remember God's own design for marriage. One man, one woman, one flesh. That there was once two, but now in God's eyes there is now one. And that in marriage, and we never must forget this, it is God who joins a couple together. It is God who takes man and wife and brings them together. It is, not, uh, it is God, not man, who does this. And so Jesus says, man must not put asunder what God has put together. And that's something that we must always remember. Insofar as it depends on us, we must never ourselves put away what God has put together, and we must not counsel others as well to put away what God has put together. But at the root of this dispute in verse 7 was a bill of divorcement concept. And that arises from Deuteronomy 24, which we ought to probably consider at least briefly. Uh, a difficult text in many ways, which is where the dispute came from. But I won't exegete it, but I want uh, to turn there, verses 1 through 4, so that we may understand what is behind this dispute with the Lord. I just want to establish some principles here because we could have an entire sermon on this one particular portion of God's word. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, and that's the matter of dispute, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now there's much to say on this text, 
But I think we lose the point when we understand that the central thrust here is actually a doctrine on remarriage and not firstly on divorce. That's clear in verse 4. Her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, and so on. In other words, this text is a barrier against a man putting away a wife and thinking, you know what, I can have her again some other time. And that's really what this text is doing, saying that because she is joined to another man as one flesh, um, you send her away and she marries again, you can never have her again. She's absolutely forbidden from you. Don't toss your wife out because she displeases you that you get cranky one day at her and then think I can have her back someday in the future. Don't play these kinds of games, a kind of serial polygamy, which you found started to happen even in this nation when we had no-fault divorce, and divorce became very uh, quick and easy. You'll even find this in a lot of Hollywood movies. A man puts away his wife, you know, in the golden age of Hollywood, and then he'll try to get her back again. This is what's in the heart of man. So Moses was dealing with the kind of hardness of men's hearts, men who would use women that way, uh, serial polygamy. Well, verse 1 here says that a bill of divorcement can be granted if he hath found some uncleanness in her. Now, this is the dispute between the rabbis, and this is where we find endless debate even today. I would just say, though, it is something besides outright adultery. And the reason for that is very clear because the penalty for adultery just two chapters earlier is what? Death. There's no point in divorce. The adulterers would be dead. So divorce is immaterial. So I'm bringing this text to you not to explain all of it, but to show you the controversy between uh, behind Matthew 19. And we don't need to linger in Deuteronomy 24, because as we return to Matthew chapter 19, what is really wonderful is that we don't have to deal with the uncleanness in view, because Jesus said this allowance, whatever it was, was given for a time in verse 8, because of the hardness of men's hearts. Just as, boys and girls, you remember, polygamy was tolerated for a time, even though it was against God's own design. And so what our Lord does here, and we don't want to get mired in Deuteronomy 24 so much, is because the Lord clears away all the cobwebs and all the debates, doesn't he? And he simplifies and clarifies. He returns us to the institution of marriage and says in verse 8, from the beginning it was not so. That divorce, if you think about this as a creation ordinance, um, divorce was not, as you think on marriage, rather, as a creation ordinance, divorce was not part of that creation ordinance at the time in which it was instituted. It wasn't in the mind of God to express to the people of God that, you know what, Adam and Eve, let me also give you this provision of divorce. You only have the one flesh doctrine. And so divorce is not part of God's original institution, which should also make us always move away from it and not towards it. Even when tempted to putting away our spouse, you know, for, for whatever reason, now we're going to get to the reasons where it is allowed. When we are tempted to be dissatisfied with them, we must say, from the beginning it was not so, and what God hath joined together, let not man tear asunder. That is, and I'm not saying that you're coming to the lawyer and you need to say this. I mean this, couples, when you are tempted to be aggravated, with your spouse. Because where is the seed? Where is the root of divorce? It's found in that bitterness. It's found in that hatred of the one that God has made one flesh with you. And at the very first motion, you know, we talked about the doctrine of concupiscence not long ago. At the very first motion of sin, 
We are to say, no, my soul, what God hath joined together, I must in no way move away from. And I am to have a heart of forgiveness and love towards what God has done. It's not, it's not right to fight the Almighty and what he has done in bringing me and my wife or my husband together. And remember this always. It is not the state that has brought you together. It is not the church that has brought you together. It is God that has brought you together. And so that means you don't go seeking counsel from the state and secular counselors when you have a marriage problem because they're going to tell you to take the easy way out, which is divorce. They don't have a clue or they rather they don't want to admit that it is God who made you one flesh. Groundless divorce is a man or woman fighting the Almighty, and you have to see it that way. And woe unto any who would fight against God in this. Even so, in verse 9 then, our Lord gives an allowance for divorce, which is fornication. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, the word for fornication, as you might know in the Greek language, is porneia, that is sexual immorality. Uh, the Greek word is broader than sexual immorality among unmarried persons, which is why Jesus uses it here. Now, I am aware that typically in English, the word fornication deals with unmarried people, um, but I would just have you know that adultery and fornication, biblically speaking, are broader concepts than that. Uh, they prohibit any kind of sexual relationship outside of the marriage bond. For instance, we know that fornication is prohibited by the seventh commandment, isn't it? But how is it worded? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Not just then in view is uh, breaking the marriage bond in the seventh co um, commandment, but also any fornication at all. So having made that clear, why does the Lord grant this allowance for divorce? And I think we need to think on that. Why is it this that breaks the marriage, that can, can break the marriage bond. Well, this is important for you, even single people, to remember that sexual relations with another person does violence if you are married and does something, especially, uh, well, also if you're unmarried, right? There's a kind of knitting of one another in the sexual act. 1 Corinthians 6, 8, uh, 16 and 18 says, What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. So the idea is that fornication, adultery, causes a fundamental disruption in the one flesh union as you seek to be one flesh, essentially, in, in the, the sexual act with another person. And so it's doing violence to the bond that you have with your own spouse. And so it is in this case, then, our Lord says, the innocent party is permitted to divorce. Now, that's important. It's permitted. It's not required, right? Um, you can, if this is the will of the Lord for you as you seek him, uh, uh, your spouse commits adultery, it is not an automatic divorce. But you are allowed, in this case, to divorce for this case, but not by the guilty party, as if adultery is a get-out-of-marriage-free card. Maybe that's what would happen, wouldn't it? You'd say, well, if I want a divorce, I guess I'll go commit adultery. 
Now, the right is on the part of the innocent party that was sinned against, not on the guilty party. And the Lord says, if you put away a spouse for any other reason, if they marry another, so you put away your spouse, let's just say because you don't like the way she cooks, and you put her away. And you know, these days, uh, it's ridiculous what you can put down in the divorce decree uh, with the state. You know, anything that displeases you, anything that causes you a slight bit of pain, you can put down. Incompatibility is a grounds for divorce by the state, which is absolutely ridiculous. But he says, you put away a spouse for any other reason. If you marry another, you're an adulterer. If they marry another, you make them an adulterer. Why is that? It's because regardless of what the state says, God says you're still married. God says you're still married. What does a piece of paper from the state have anything to do with God? God says, no, divorce, marriage is my ordinance, and I regulate it, and I tell you exactly when you may get a divorce and when you may not. And so if you get a divorce from the state or even a wicked church and they say, okay, you, you are now divorced, well, you better check the terms of what God's law says. You may not actually be divorced and you have to be very clear. In fact, not only are you still married, if the person you unjustly put away doesn't recognize that they are still married um, to you in God's eyes, you are guilty of making them an adulterer. Speaking of them, and shall marry another committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now, if you think about this, it puts an obligation of any of you who pursue a divorced person to make sure they have a biblical um, divorce. Otherwise, you commit adultery if you get married to them, and you make them commit adultery, and I'll have more on that in our next heading. Now, I'll deal with an objection here on those who say there are no grounds for uh, divorce after marriage. Um, Some will teach that this text only deals with like a a betrothal uh, before marriage. Um, They want to teach that in the New Testament, um, one once married has no grounds for any divorce. And this is the text that they have to overcome in order to maintain that view. So they say this is a betrothal and not uh, a marriage that Jesus is speaking of. But the text clearly deals with marriage. I think it's pretty plain. Jesus Jesus harkens back to Deuteronomy 24, and that text was about marriage and not betrothal. But more than that, Jesus harkens to the creation ordinance of marriage. God's joining two to become one flesh. And you don't become one flesh at a betrothal. You become one flesh when the marriage is engaged. So this text is properly about marriage and biblical grounds for divorce, and we must discard the idea that it speaks of anything but. And I only put that there uh, because we could spend hours dealing with all the controversies on how men interpret these texts, but this is perhaps the one that you might encounter in the Protestant church, and so I will leave that there for you to consider. Now, there's another text you must consider which has a biblical bearing on divorce. Uh, It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we did read a bit earlier. And in this text, uh, you might want to turn there in your Bibles. We come to verses 10 and 11, and we read, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. 
Now, what's Paul doing here? He's simply reiterating what the Lord has already said, isn't he? He he is saying, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And he tells couples, don't put each other away. This is what the Lord taught us in the Gospels. And also, but I think we might read it too fast if we don't see the goal in a breach of marital relations, which is what? Not divorce, but reconciliation. Be reconciled to her husband. Now, how much evil has been perpetrated because we forget this? That the goal of any breach in marriage is reconciliation. That we might forgive, that others may repent, and that we may be reconciled one to another, knowing that we are one flesh. Always reconciling, ever forgiving, ever covering um, offenses in love. And we could speak of that maybe another time. But then Paul gives further light and further instruction on divorce in verses 12 and 13. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Now I'm going to pause here because he begins by saying, and many are taken aback by this, by saying, I speak, not the Lord. And so some will take this entirely the wrong way, as though Paul is giving his personal opinions here, as though he is giving extra biblical commands. No, you know that this entire epistle is given under inspiration of God. This is not Paul's opinions to Corinth. The Holy Ghost gives this light to Paul. What the apostle is doing, and you need to mark this well, is that further light is being given by God to the church at this point. Uh, The Lord Jesus did not speak on this issue in his earthly ministry, but now Christ speaks through Paul. And that's the way that he says, I, not the Lord. He says, in a sense, you remember what the Lord said, uh, let not the wife depart from her husband, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried, and so on, right? This is the Lord's teaching on marriage and divorce. But he is showing us now greater light. In other words, in Matthew 19, you think of the church that Jesus is ministering to, professing believers. Right? It's a time in which he is speaking to a nation that has uh, uh, at least professed outwardly uh, faith in Jehovah. But now, as the church expands, further light has to come into the church, and we find converts to the faith who are with, uh, in God's providence, unbelieving spouses. And now this has to be dealt with because evidently there are those in the church at the time who are saying, well, I am converted. Do I really have to stay now with my unbelieving spouse? Life is really hard having an unbelieving spouse, as some of you well know. It's very hard to live with one who doesn't love the Lord their God with all their heart, who is bucking against his precepts, who tells me that I cannot go to the congregation and worship the Lord and keeps me shut in perhaps, or will not follow the Lord's ways, will not pray to the Lord, will not seek Christ, will uh, not raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so many are saying, I should be able to divorce. I'm not equally yoked. And the Lord says through Paul, no. Do not put them away if they will consent to live with you. You remain married to them. 
As you heard this morning in verse 14, which we read here too, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. He says, don't even worry about your children. They are, they are sanctified by the Lord, even if you have an unbelieving spouse. So don't use your children either as grounds for a divorce. But then in verse 15, we read, and here is this allowance. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. So here is the only other allowance for a divorce. The departure, geographic departure of an unbeliever. This is not as so many twists in the church today for emotional abandonment or something of that kind. Think of how hard it was to live with an unbeliever in the first century. And it's not the geographic desertion of a believer either, but he's very plain. If the unbeliever depart, let him depart. In which case, the believing spouse can choose to be loosed, that is, divorced, and they are not under bondage in such a scenario. Now, I do want to say And I can't get into every case, of course. But if a professing believer does depart geographically, well, it's probably not going to take very much time for the church to determine they are acting as an unbeliever. This is why we'll get to it in our last heading. We ought to be heavily involved with the church courts and her elders. After all, what does 1 Timothy 5.8 say? But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, what has he done? He hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. So it's very clear that if um, a man or a woman is unrepentant and won't be reconciled to their spouse geographically, it is very much the case that the church may declare, you know what, this person must be excommunicated, and now is an unbeliever who has departed, and then you can have a lawful divorce. (laughs) In that case, the innocent party can sue. For divorce, but the goal always is reconciling, not separating. Well, in view of all this, back in Matthew 19, we read it when uh, when the disciples saw how small the grounds of divorce are. Remember what they said: If the case of uh, the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. This is where our flesh is, right? This is why we try to create all kinds of scenarios for divorce. But the Lord will have none of it. These are the two scenarios where you may get a lawful divorce. He knows it's hard on our flesh. He doesn't say there, there, you know, you can get a divorce for any case. No, he emphasizes and says, this is very hard on your flesh. It absolutely is. Because he knows our flesh's desire is to find ways out of marriage, which our confession says very brilliantly, that we are apt to study ways to find divorce. But it is an exercise of your religion, beloved. It's an exercise of faith in the Lord to see how ordinarily inviolable inviolable the marriage bond is. That's an exercise of faith, even when it comes at a great cost to yourself, which is sort of the one thing Christians, especially in America today, are unwilling to do. Uh, They've seen that they must have their best life now. But really, friends, if this is your best life, then um, you are headed to hell because our better life is coming in heaven if we are believers. 
And that's what we must believe. In this world, we are living in a world of thorns and thistles and a curse of sinners, ourselves being the chief. And life can be very difficult this side of the, uh, the curse, this side of the fall. But we are to press on in difficulty, even when it is our closest, closest relation that causes us hurt. And if we would have this mind, we would join in the sufferings of Christ, wouldn't we? You think about what his own bride did. Here's Peter denying him three times before all men. I don't know the man. You know, he suffered such great, great um, distress at the hands of his own people. And yet he loved them and took care of them. And so if you are in a marriage today and you find great unhappiness and are tempted to leave it unbiblically without a valid ground, that is adultery and geographic desertion by an unbeliever, you're to stay and believe by faith that you are doing so in obedience to the Lord and that the Lord will bring out a special blessing to you even as he promised. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You will search those beatitudes in vain for those who will have an easy and breezy life this side of heaven. But the blessing comes to those who persevere and pursue righteousness. And you must also remember who you are married to forever, child of God. It's not your earthly spouse. No, they may hurt you, but your earthly marriage ends in death. And your heavenly marriage endures forever. And I'll consider that at the final head. So after hearing from God's word, the Bible, let me summarize what I've preached on this way by way of our confession of faith, our doctrinal standard. Uh, it's what you and I have assented to as members of this congregation, and we must not forget it. Um, confession of faith, chapter 24, I'll read paragraph 6. Uh, it's on your bulletin. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage. And here is the condition. Yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate, which shows you that reconciliation is still always in view, is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. All right, well, I would encourage you to look at the scripture proofs there for that, um, because this is not man's mere opinion. This is what the word of God has said. Well, having looked at biblical grounds for divorce, the next two headings will be um, quicker to go through. We'll consider first biblical remarriage. Now, there are grounds for remarriage once a marriage is over, biblically speaking. Uh, let's begin with the least controversial case of remarriage, which all of us should admit to. Uh, that's after the death of a spouse. Um, you are free to marry. Your marriage, as I said, ends with your spouse's death. Romans 7, 2 through 3. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So widows and widowers are always free to marry in the Lord as they are Christians. But what about divorced persons? Um, let me say again 
that in an unbiblical divorce, assuming you or your spouse have not remarried, your obligation to the Lord is to be reconciled to your spouse, as you've heard from 1 Corinthians 7. Now, that's not always possible, and the divorce uh, may be biblical, in which case that's not your obligation anymore. But if it is unbiblical, you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, you are still married in God's eyes. And that would make you an adulterer to be joined to another. That means if your spouse got a divorce from you without biblical grounds, and I understand this can be a strain uh, on some, if your spouse got a divorce on unbiblical grounds and the church has not said that you are lawfully divorced, well, you are not free to remarry lest you be an adulterer yourself. This is the Lord's own teaching, and we have to be clear on that. However, if the other party has divorced you unbiblically and they do get married or they do fornicate, well, they have broken the marriage bond then and you can get a biblical divorce. And that's how this usually happens, right? They leave you for no cause, then they'll go get married to somebody else, at which point you have grounds for a biblical divorce. Now, the initial divorce may have been on unbiblical grounds, but you have a true divorce now, or you can pursue a true divorce now. And I understand we're in a situation where the state will probably never give you an actual decree on biblical grounds. They'll say, you're already divorced in the state's eyes. And you might say, no, I I need to see that I am divorced in God's eyes. And I need a true divorce decree. State will laugh at you probably. Well, let me just say the church can give you a divorce decree that you can then take with you. And we're happy to do such a thing. Now, you might think, well, maybe the Lord is saying also, and I want to deal with this one scenario I didn't earlier, well, can only men put away their their wives biblically? Um, Can women sue for a divorce? Yes, they can. Um, Mark 10 is actually very interesting, verse 12. And if a woman, this is Jesus saying, shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. So obviously our Lord is foreseeing the time coming, which wasn't that society, where women would have the ability to commit uh, to divorce their husband. And so women can divorce their husbands if they have biblical grounds. Now, anyway, that, uh, that aside, um, after an unbiblical gra- divorce, you commit adultery if you marry another. Um, I've already dealt with some of these other objections, so... Uh, what if you have gotten married after an unbiblical divorce? This is sometimes a question. Should I leave my new spouse? I, I see now that my divorce was unbiblical. It wasn't on biblical grounds. Should I go back to my original spouse? I married another. The answer is no. Don't do that. Don't destroy two families. You are now truly and properly married. You repent of your sin of getting the second marriage, but uh, you don't go back to your first husband or wife. All right, so that was dealing with unbiblical divorce. What of a biblical divorce? And let me just say, if you are the innocent party, you have the right to remarry. If you are the innocent party, you have the right to remarry. The possibility was there in Deuteronomy 24, as you saw earlier, but also what Jesus said in Matthew 19.9, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. That exception clause applies to the marry another as well as um, putting away for fornication, such that biblical grounds for a divorce is the only way to avoid adultery in remarriage. So let's be clear on that. Now, as you 
can see this is all very difficult, brethren, very difficult. And even considering this theme was an occasion of great sorrow for me. And having to even walk with several, um, as an elder and as a minister, who have gone through difficulties in divorce. But let me say that almost every difficulty that I have ever encountered would have been erased if there was a commitment on both parties to follow the Lord's rule here. And so I would commend to you for further study John Murray's book on divorce, and he deals with several difficult issues, and he's very consistent with what the Word of God has to say, and he would be a good guide for you. But as this is a hard topic, let me deal with our final um, heading, Biblical Authorities, which is sort of a catch-all safety net for the people of God. Now, in any movement towards divorce, you must, especially as a member of this church, seek the counsel of your elders. Our confession wisely says that because man is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together, we are to have in divorce proceedings a public and orderly course of proceeding uh, to be observed and the persons concerning it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own cases. Because you know what the flesh is like. If you were left to your own discretion, you would run headlong into sin and I would say that our legal system in this nation, this confession was written under a godly magistrate, but in this nation, your magistrate is of absolutely no help in divorce because of things like no-fault divorce. And there's no need anymore for a biblical basis for divorce. And even if you sue on biblical grounds, what you often find in the divorce decree is no-fault which is absurd. That is a sin against God to ever have a divorce decree from the state. Not your sin, necessarily, but the state's sin in saying that there was no fault in this divorce. When one stands guilty, at least, before God. And so, our confession then brings this idea, especially that idea from Moses, that there was this bill of divorcement that was probably given by the elders, so that a man is not left to his own his own assertion of his own case and his own relation with his wife. And so get counsel from elders first. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And let me say this as well. Husbands and wives, this has been one of the greatest problems. You see this in divorce, ungodly divorce, is that husband and wife are often not under godly church government. Maybe one party is and the other is not. One then pits the elders against the other party, and then the other party is just off doing whatever they want, or perhaps both are not in the church. And then they come into the church, one party or the other, and says, can you help me? But without both parties being under the same government, it's very hard to help. And usually that means that there's some breach that has already led to this couple not being under the authority of uh and submission to church government. Husbands and wives then be under godly elders and under a government that has teeth, meaning not just I attend a church, but that the church can excommunicate me or my wife or my husband. Right? Being able to say this person can be divorced because they're acting as an unbeliever. They've abandoned the marriage. 
and so on, that they can actually constrain them to say, no, you must reconcile. There's no option or else you are coming under church government, uh, discipline. Or when there is adultery, the, the elders can say, yes, you do have grounds for divorce. Or when the unbeliever departs, you can say, um, you do have grounds for divorce. Now go in peace, um, brethren. And so, brethren, I would say, um, don't ever take the tact as we think on these things that what you are owed in this life is happiness. That's almost the number one reason you find for people saying they want a divorce these days. You know, it is my right to be happy. I've dealt with several divorces now where that is almost the theme. I have a right to be happy and my spouse does not make me happy. Well, you need to find that in the Bible for me, where this is a right and privilege granted to you from God. No, you are called to holiness. You are called to cross-bearing. You are called to a denial of self. And the Lord understood when he gave his word, he understood that there are going to be hard marriages. And he gave the word that he gave us today in view of it all. And what you and I must do is never seek secular counselors who will uh, tickle our ears, give uh, credence to our flesh. And you must seek godly plurality of elders, not just your minister, but your elders as a whole. And uh, you must seek reconciliation first. Well, before your relationship breaks down to the point of needing to consider divorce, I think, as I alluded to earlier, you must never forget in marriage that Matthew 18 applies in marriage too. That you are to seek to reconcile with your brethren. You rebuke your spouse face to face if they have sinned against you, and you seek reconciliation. If they do not repent before you go to divorce court, you go take another brother or sister with you and take um, them to your spouse. And if they won't hear a brother or sister, what do we hear? You take them to the church, take them to the elders. Right? Always trying to reconcile things in the system the Lord has given us by faith. Not running to YouTube to find somebody who will say, you know what, if your spouse is like this, run away from them. Go find happiness in the arms of another person. Well, brethren, though this is a sad theme to even consider, and some of you, I'm keenly aware, have gone through divorce and have been deserted by a spouse, and some of you are living today with hard marriages. I know this for a fact. What can you do in such times but look to the Lord Jesus Christ? To whom else shall you go? Right At the end of the day, maybe the blessing for you with a hard marriage is this, that you are pressed ever closer to Jesus. Remembering that you are wed and will be wed to the one who loved you perfectly, who will never leave you, who will never forsake you. And though we have these afflictions for some decades, eternity, as we meditated in between services, is full of the blessedness of his presence and love. And what these then, as the apostle said, these things don't move me when I think on such things. And though you suffer now, he says in so many ways, rejoice over your sufferings as you enter into the sufferings of Christ by faith.
that you may know him better. And so you yourself rejoice to know that Christ's own bride caused him pain and yet loved her anyway and loves you anyway with all the pain that you have caused him, even nailing him to a cross. And he still says, I won't divorce you and I will love you as I have loved you to the end. And so as you think on difficulties in marriage, you are always exhorted to look to the beloved. My beloved is mine, even if I am suffering today, even in a, on, in a difficult marriage. And may that thought of Christ cause you to press on and endure, even as you say, even so, come Lord Jesus. This has been the mind of God and the word of God over divorce. May God bless it to us. Let us arise for prayer if able. O Lord, our God, we long to be in the home that Christ is making for us. And we long for the day in which he will come and take us away. But until then, Lord, we pray for our earthly marriages that you would strengthen them, that we would be committed to them, and that we would not seek any way to depart from them unless we have one of these two grounds that our hearts would ever be towards reconciling towards our spouse and that we would understand that divorce begins in the heart before it begins in the courtroom and that we would, Father, first seek to be reconciled to our spouse, that we see the seed of divorce in every time we are tempted to be frustrated and move away from our spouse. Let us not have the sun go down on our anger in our marriages. May we be quick to reconcile May we be quick to ask forgiveness. May we be quick to grant forgiveness to our spouse. May we delight and rejoice in the spouse of our youth. And may we, Father, who have been divorced or been put away unjustly, may we find our hope in Christ. And may we find our joy in him. And Father, we pray that you would defend all those who have been unjustly put away and that you would be especially close to them, and that they would know Christ all the more. That time in which they are tempted to despair, may they seek Christ all the more. And may you bless them this day with a greater measure of your spirit. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond to God with praise, Psalm 62.